welcome to this episode of What Else? My guest is Terry Peppers, and I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. This episode of What Else is brought to you by our sponsor, Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad. Enjoy. Now here's What Else with Terry Peppers. Let's test it out. One, two. How are you doing? One, two. One, two. Two, one. Yeah, that seems pretty good. Okay. I think it's happening. I think it's on. All right. Here we are. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to welcome our listeners, our listener, uh, to what else? My guest right now is Mr. Terry Peppers. Terrence, what's your middle name? Terrence Allen. Terrence Allen Peppers. Tell the story. You told me this before, right? That your yeah. dad picked your... Yeah. I have a very interesting uh, name backstory. Yeah. Uh, so my father is a fairly ridiculous South Side White Sox fan. And okay. I was born in uh, September of 1974. And so the 1974 baseball season had two incredibly notable White Sox players. Uh, Terry Forrester was a relief pitcher, and he led the American League uh, in saves that year. And Dick Allen was a White Sox slugger, and he led the American League in home runs. The notable elements of this story is is that the White Sox team that year was terrible, but they had two all-stars in Terry Forrester and Dick Allen. Hence, Terrence Allen Peppers. That's great. How do you feel about that? Having like, how do you feel about that? I, I think I story? always, I think I always had a very difficult time with my first name with mm-hmm. Terry because it's not, it's not a name that in the seventies was a very common name. I knew a lot of as a Catholic kid growing up in the Western suburbs of Chicago. I knew a lot of kids that were Josephs and Michaels and Johns, um, but not a lot of kids named Terry. So when in, inevitably when you're in Catholic grade school and you're asked to write a story about what saint you're named after, you realize very quickly there's no St. Terrence. And, you know, you're like, why the hell is my name not like everyone else's? So... I think when my dad told me that story, I was probably in junior high and I was kind of over the whole name thing. And my dad told me that name backstory and I was like, oh, that's really, really, really cool. Yeah. Right, because at least there's this. There's a backstory to it, right? Or... Like, you know, my brother's Tom and my brother's Mike, right? They have your kind of classic saint sounding names, but they don't have as cool of a backstory as I do. That's pretty good. <laughs> Were you in the situation where, uh, like, if you would go on vacation and they would have, like, the little souvenirs at the gas station with the, the fake license plates that were pre-printed with names on them and you could never find one with your name? Did you you have... always could. Yeah? Okay. You, you could. Because I couldn't. You could, yeah, you could, you could find Terry, but it was – there weren't a lot of them. There weren't a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And, again, when I – it wasn't until I got into junior high that I was very self-conscious about my first name that, like – I wasn't necessarily putting myself in positions where I wanted to advertise that my name was Terry. Right. I can see that. I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so you, you have three siblings? 
I have three siblings. I have two brothers and a sister. My older brother Mike, my younger brother Tom, and my younger brother Debbie. And what's the spread? What's the age spread? Uh, all of us. Uh, I'm three years younger than my older brother. Okay. I'm four years older than my younger brother, and <laughs> I'm eight years eight years older than my sister. So okay. basically, the classic four. Yeah, that's a pretty good spread. The four spread. That's interesting. Were you guys close growing up? I feel like that's enough of an age difference so that it could be like you're kind of in different brackets. You know, I don't – I think you could be in different brackets, but I don't – I'm incredibly close to my brothers and sisters. Yeah. And I think it was a it's – a prox, it's a proximity thing. Sure. Um, and plus it's kind of like uh, anyone that has – anyone that has siblings kind of understands this. It's, a, it's an, uh, an idol kind of thing too. Idol, like not I D L E I D O L, right? Right, where you you kind of always want to be with or like the person that's older than you, and eventually, when you get through adolescence and the teenage angst time, mm-hmm. where you kind of don't want to be with anyone, and you definitely don't want to be with your stupid little brother. Um, Hopefully you have that enlighten, enlightenment where you're like, oh, yeah, this guy is pretty cool and he's kind of like me, but he's also his own person. Um, and, you know, I feel like you're the same way with your brother. Yeah, I think it was for me, we're, we're so close in age that it's a little bit of a different thing. Like we didn't really have as much once you got especially closer to high school. You didn't have as much space between you. You were in the same Circles and yeah. in the same activities, kind of at the same time, which is not necessarily bad, but a different dynamic. When you're at the three four, it's. I think with my older brother, I was very, I was very close to him because we were always, we were, you know, in the we always rode the bus together, and he was older than me, but not that much older than me, right. but old enough that like his friends kind of terrified me in grade school because they were just giants, right? And right. in high school, he was a senior when I was a freshman, so that was both good and bad. Sure. Um, but I think with my older brother, we were always close because of music. Mm-hmm. So I loved all of the music that he listened to. And I think he was very formative in developing my musical tastes and the things that I liked. And I was really close with my younger brother because we would screw around and play a lot of video games and play sports and skateboard together. Yeah. So, I mean, there were just common things that... Sure. My older brother didn't really like playing video games, but I could always play video games with Tommy. Yeah. Hey, do you want to play video games? And Tommy would beat my ass, but it was still <laughs> it was still very fun. Yeah, it's a shared. It was it was thing. fun. Yeah. Right. And you know, me and Tommy still play video games to this day, together, which is kind of kooky when you think about That's it. That's great. I love it. Um, did your older brother did he play music? Did he play an instrument? I, you know, not like. I think when we take, like, the musical angle to it, it was, you have to kind of put it in the context of the 70s and the 80s. And I think the more I think back to it, the more I think of both the uniqueness of it, but also the ludicrous of it. Um, In 1984, there was this record that was released by a hard rock band in California, right, Uh, Van Halen, and the album was 1984. And 
I was 10 years old, and that would have put my brother at 13. And so when a record like that kind of comes out, uh, it just kind of blows everyone's mind. And leading up to that, our, our babysitter was this high school kid named Stash. Stash Lewandowski. <laughs> As it should be. <laughs> and oh. Stash would come over to our house uh, and babysit us. I probably have his early recollections as like 80 or 81. And he would come over when I was six or seven and my older brother was nine and ten. And he would bring a stack of records. Like a stack of records. And my dad would just kind of smile and laugh and be like, okay, have fun, guys. And once my parents left for the night, Stash would just start playing records. And so, you know, it was like just crazy things like the police and Rush. And so I felt like I was actually at a very young age, me and my older brother, like we were listening to things that people weren't necessarily listening to. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you couple that with like my dad's love of like 60s rock. Okay. You know, like you find yourself coming home at, from school going, okay, well, I'm going to listen to Sgt. Pepper's today or I'm going to listen to Who's Next. Um, I don't – my son who's 10 years old is not doing that, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And so when 1984 came out, my older brother kind of had a very – made a very deliberate decision. This is that he really liked – we really liked listening to music. Um, it was very clear that – Music was an avenue to get girls, right? Um, so he was going to be the next Eddie Van Halen, but not from Los Angeles. He was going to be the Eddie Van Halen from Chicago. So I believe in 1984, mm -hmm. my dad actually purchased him, which we still have, a Kramer guitar. Nice. And thus began the general Pepper's Boys kind of fleeting musical you know it kind of weaves in and out a lot so did he practice like would you see him yeah okay. he took lessons and he practiced and of course i was at that age where i just wanted to i wanted to do everything he did and i think you know probably at about 84 that was kind of also when your older brother when he's a, when he when he becomes a teenager, he kind of doesn't want anything to do with his younger brother anymore. Yeah, um, and so at that point, it was like, I got a guitar, I got a Gibson Flying V. Nice. <laughs> uh, and I started playing, and I started taking lessons because my mom was really into us wanting to play instruments. Her dad was a good musician, and okay. she felt like uh, it was an important thing for us to do or learn or just know. And so it was, you, it was kind of, I don't think we were given an ultimatum, but I think my mom kind of said, you need to play an instrument, so it's either going to be the saxophone or the piano unless you pick something different. And 1984 came out, and my older brother's like, I'll play the guitar. And I was like, I'll, I'm going to do what Mike does. <laughs> and 
Yeah. That was kind of how it started. What made you pick the Flying V? Um, so, again, this is like stupid stuff. One of the records that uh, Stash brought over was Blizzard of Oz. Nice. And for the listener that doesn't know, um, Blizzard of Oz was the kind of like what he's had a lot of them. It was Ozzy's kind of comeback record at the time. And the guitar player that was on that was this guy named Randy Rhodes. And Randy Rhodes played two guitars that I know of. He had a Les Paul um, that I think was like gold. It was a gold top. It might have been a gold top. Maybe it was black. He had a Les Paul and he had a polka dot flying V. And that kind of guitar playing when I was that age was face melting. It was like, oh my God, this is insane. And so when you're that age, you kind of believe that if you have the same tools as the professional, that's right. You'll basically be able to play like the professional. Now you learn later on down the road that like, that's totally not the case. Um, but that was why I picked that guitar. That was why my brother picked a Kramer. That was why I picked a Flying V. It was terrible to play. Terrible to play. You know, you have to stick the V. Yeah, sure. You have to stick the V in your thigh. Right. On the, uh, in your inner thigh. Or you have to play standing up. Right. Right. So you're either sort of like a mock <laughs> classical position. Mock or... classical position or you're playing standing up. And the strap positioning on a V is not very comfortable mm-hmm. because... Yeah, I would think it's... Yeah. It juts out, and you're clipped into a tight neck. Um, so it's kind of weird playing it. Yeah. And did you take lessons? I took lessons. Okay. And it was awful. <laughs> uh, you, in what way? So this is the thing that I appreciate with kids that take music lessons, is, is that when I started taking them when I was 10... I don't think I was very mentally ready for the rigors of musical training, especially on an instrument like the guitar. Um, Once you learn the basics, you don't, it's kind of like anything that you really want to get good at. So I hear 1984, I hear Blizzard of Oz, my parents get me an expensive guitar. And I immediately think that I'm going to be awesome at it. (laughs) And you go to your first lesson and you're like, okay, we're going to play Mary Had a Little Lamb. And you're like, what the fuck is this, man? (laughs) Like, (laughs) when when do we get to eruption, (laughs) right? (laughs) And so you begin learning music. And you don't really kind of understand at that age that, like, the foundation of music is tuning your guitar, E-A-D-G-B-E, right, Uh, scales, and Mary Have a Little Lamb. And on top of that, it's really dedicating yourself to playing and practicing. Right. And if you're not going to do those things, you're not going to get any good. And so I took lessons for probably about three years. I think my brother took them for three years, too. And then I quit. I was like, fuck this. Sucks. 
stupid. Did you learn any did, at the lessons? Did they teach you any like, okay, now I'm going to show you how to play brown sugar or here's how to. So that's the other thing that you learn about lessons is, is that growing up in the western suburbs of Chicago, I believe my mom t- t- got us lessons at the place where she bought the guitars, which was on 75th Street. There's a place called, place called Fairview Music. And it was a very small music shop. Um, and, you know, it had all the instruments in the front. And in the back, it had a long hallway with four little mini studios. Right. And the thing was, like, you buy a guitar, you're going to buy lessons. And so we did it there. And I don't think my guitar teacher wasn't, he wasn't necessarily good or bad, but I think he wasn't necessarily relatable. Mm-hmm. And so he wasn't asking me what I was really into right. or the things that I really liked. He kind of had his music book and he would be like, here's how you tune your guitar. Here's Mary had a little lamb and hot cross buns. And, you know, kind of when you get through that, you get into chords. But everything was off of the book. Yeah. And it wasn't really any of the stuff that I really wanted to get into. Right. And so I quit. And I think it was maybe like a year later, my friend Ferris, who I was going to grade school with, he was also taking lessons. And he was also into Ozzy. Really big Black Sabbath fan. And I went to his house. He and his younger brother, Basil, were taking lessons. And I went over to his house maybe in seventh grade. And I think we, he invited me over to go sledding. Like, it's a real seventh grade thing to do. Let's go sledding. Yeah, that's right. And then we went back to his house. Um, and he started playing for me. And I was just like, oh, my God, you're fucking amazing and he's like well yeah you know my guitar teacher knows that, like i'm into sabbath and i really like led zeppelin so like this is just you know basic easy stuff that like he showed me right he's like this is uh this is how easy it is to sound like jimmy page and i remember him showing me like that scale and i was like whoa wait a minute <laughs> that's wait i could do that and so then at least me musically, I I then began, I think, make the orthogonal connection that, wait a minute, maybe I just had a shitty teacher. I actually know, I actually know a lot of this stuff. I know what these chords are. I know what these positions are. Um, and so then by, by that time, I kind of started, I started dabbling, teaching myself more. Mm-hmm. So I started listening to more things right? Trying to train my ear to be better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, what's ironic is, is that my brother had basically given up music. He had moved on to like sports in high school. And I was kind of like, hmm, this is kind of interesting. Yeah. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll, maybe I'll stick, maybe I'll stick around with this mm-hmm. and do it. But it became, so this is now, so basically now I'm a teenager. Right. And you try to find I don't know if this is I wonder if this is going to be the case with my son or if this was the case with you I liked to do things by myself so I have four brothers and sisters I have a mom and dad right I live in suburban Chicago 
it it wasn't really kind of overdeveloped suburban Chicago. It was kind of like burgeoning suburban Chicago. Mm-hmm. So like you could go outside and like there would basically be no one outside, which was always very interesting. So I got into three things, three or four things that I could do by myself that are like in retrospect really oddball like nerdy things that I'm sure my parents were both celebrating and thought were weird. I would program computers. I would read books. I would skateboard and I would play my guitar. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> a pretty good lineup. But there's they're kind of strange. <laughs> they're strange things. They're very strange things. Programming in basic. I, I did the same on my Atari 800. But strange. I guess. And I mean, right, if you... <clears throat> at the time... Unusual at the, at the time. At the time, for it, a, was, it was... For a kid. For a, an 11 or 12-year-old kid, y- y- computers... Computers were a thing, but they weren't like the thing that they are now. They weren't ubiquitous. No, not even. I mean, I'm older than you, so when I was futzing with it, it was not even. I mean, nobody had one in the home. Right. But it was something that I could do by myself. I think I found a lot of. I took a lot of solace in yeah. just kind of being by myself. Um, and I attribute most of that to having a very large atomic family. Right. Um, you know, my mom and dad are the oldest of very large families. There were four of us. And by hook or crook, we were eating dinner together all the time, no matter what. And we were going to spend time together as yeah. a family, no matter what. I mean, right. it's pretty classic stuff. Yeah. And so, so when you, you're doing that all the time, you've, you eventually get to a point where you're like, yeah, you know, I kind of want to be by myself. Do you have that now? I think, yeah. I think there are times where, you know, I have two kids. Right. I'm married. Uh, I've been married for today is Pepper's, Laura, and I's 14th wedding anniversary. Today? Today. Congratulations. <laughs> 14. That's 14th. great. And I find time. I, f- I still have moments where I prefer isolation. Sure. Um. Where I don't want to necessarily, not in a bad way, not because I I don't love my wife and my kids, I do. But there are times where I would just prefer to be by myself. And so the way that I do this now is whether I'm running or playing video games or reading, like I still find time that to like just, I have to be by myself. Uh, I think it's like a mental health thing. Like I just, if I'm by myself, it's just it's much easier for me to like control the world and see the world and deal with the world. It's harder when you're kind of surrounded by other people. Yeah. Do, I, do you find that it um, like sort of recharges you to then go back in to dealing with people? You know, like if you have, do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, I think uh, there are times where if I I'm at home, and I, like, take a half day or something, and I do, I, I'm able to, like, cross off, like, 50,000 things that, like, I've needed to do at the house. Right. Clean the garage, do, do all this stuff. That when Laura and the boys come home, my mood is just, 
It's like, oh my God, I got all this stuff done, right? Like, how are you? What do you guys want to do? Do you want to do all this stuff? Um, and conversely, I'm a bit of a fucking crank when I haven't done any of those things and they come home and they're like, hey, what do you want to do? What do you? And I'm like, ah, leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. There's a strange, like, dichotomy, I think, that goes on. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Right, that thing of if you can get sort of your self together and yourself recharged and some of your things under control, it's a lot easier to then go and interact with other yeah. people in a way that's going to be positive. But it isn't like I'm, uh, I always want to be alone. I think there's like a really delicate balance. And I think in my, throughout my life, I've had kind of extremes where when I was a kid growing up in the burbs, I was always around a lot of people, always. And I think it was a very natural reaction to me for me to be like, hey, I need some space just to think about things or to figure some stuff out. So what are the things that I can do by myself? Well, skateboarding is something you can do by yourself. Playing the guitar is something that you can do by yourself. When you computer program, nobody wants to watch you <laughs> do the code, right? And reading is, is stuff that you can do by yourself. Do you think you thought about those do you think you just naturally gravitated to those things or did you have like a conscious sense of I need to find something I can do by myself? I think they were just like things that I began to realize that they were, hey, if I practice a thing, if I practice the guitar by myself and then show my older brother that I can play King of Pain, he's like, oh, wow, that's awesome how did you figure that out you're like oh yeah i kind of practice but um and you know with a computer program when i would program um and then i would show my dad hey watch this and he would be like oh wow that's really cool um so i think it was just there was this balance of like gave me the space to like focus on a thing and to detach from i don't know a pretty busy world and just focus on whatever it was I wanted to focus on at the time. Mm -hmm. With skateboarding, too, it would be like I, I would focus on doing tricks. How can I learn this trick? How can I learn this trick? How can I learn this trick? Um, and I think that was the one thing that, like, it was, it was more physically hard. Right. Playing the guitar and computer programming and reading are not physically hard. But skateboarding, like, you're going to fall and fall and fall and fall and fall. Right. You're going to try a trick a thousand times. And then finally, it clicks and you get it and you're like, oh, wow, I just did that. Um, so those things seem like, it seems like you had a an appreciation or an appetite for persistence. Yeah. I think I've said this to you before, right? I don't think I'm, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I'm very smart. Um, but I feel like I can always outwork people. Um, and I think that's because I, I, I'm not, I'm not very smart. I'm very average. I'm very average. But I think persistence is, is one, it, you know, some people, you can call it hard work. But it's just being persistent. It's going, you know what? Like, I'm going to figure this out. It may take me five years. <laughs> right. 
but I'm going to figure it out. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that kind of ties back to what you were saying about um, about starting playing guitar. Because I think a lot of people, um, myself included, have the same experience. Like, okay, I bought the right guitar and I have the desire, so I should be awesome now, right? <laughs> and it's like, oh, wait a minute. I have to do all that work. And then, you know, I think for most of us, it's like, eh. Okay, forget it, you know. If there was a sign on the guitar that said um, something like journey before destination or uh, are you sure you know what you're signing up for, Um, I think it would probably dissuade a lot of people from playing the guitar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But for me... I stopped playing because I had a bad teacher. And then when a couple of my friends showed me that it, was, it wasn't that I was bad, mm-hmm. it was that you just had a bad teacher, you, you actually know things that are usable. And then it was like, oh, wait a second. We can, wait we a second. I can actually things. apply. I, I can actually apply what I know. Wait a minute. And so then you buy a tab book or, you know, you listen to um, a solo or a chord and you're like, oh, wait, I think I know what shape or form that is. Right. Or, you know, you kind of do it the cheap way. You you record a police song off of the radio and then you go to a music store with a notebook and you open up the synchronicity songbook. <laughs> Love this, <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, here, here are the King of Pain chords, right? And you write them down surreptitiously. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have enough money to buy the book, right? right? So like you fifteen bucks, right, and you're twelve. You, that's right. Yeah, you ride your bike over there, right? Uh, and then on your way back, you spend a dollar on a Slurpee and maybe a comic book, right? Smart investment. <laughs> And and now you have and now you have the pieces, right? You have the chords that you've written them down, and you have the taped version mm-hmm. of King of Pain. And so now it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to figure it out, or are you not going to figure it out? And the, the this goes back to persistence. The, okay, you you have the raw materials. Right. You have the instrument. You have the chords. You have what Andy Summer sounds like. Okay, now it's on you to figure out how Andy is doing that. And of course, these are like, in retrospect, and you and I have talked about this, Andy Summers and The Edge are probably two of the most terrible guitar players to select as influences when trying to learn songs. Not because they aren't great musicians, they are brilliant musicians, but their slightly more minimalist approach in processed approach to guitar playing is something that takes a lot of thought that a young kid is not going to get. Yeah. And there's, you know, that's, those are examples where also people can get caught up in the gear and stuff instead of the playing. The, the playing parts. in the notes. Right. In the notes. Yeah. So that goes, to, I mean, that's the persistence thing. Yeah. Do you think that's something that you just have naturally, like a, an inclination towards 
persistence and perseverance and stuff? Yeah, I don't know where that, I guess, yeah. I don't know where that kind of comes from. Mm-hmm. I think it's just this innate drive to, like, I'm going to get better, I'm going to get better, I'm going to figure this out. And I, I'm pretty sure that's, you know, definitely imprinted on in that I think that's a Peppers thing, you know, like that mm-hmm. was, that was, that's a mom and dad thing. Mm-hmm. And, but what's funny is, is that parenting, and you know this, parenting in the 70s, in 80s, was a real hands-off affair. My mom and dad weren't, weren't checking to see if I did my homework. My mom and dad weren't checking to see when I had basketball or baseball practice. Um, that was kind of my responsibility to do. And so it wasn't like they were going to be like, hey, let's go. You got to go to baseball practice. It was me going, okay, it's 430. It's going to take me 30 minutes to ride my bike to McCollum Park, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> because I have baseball practice at 5, and I'll be home by 6. Um, so I think the hands-off nature of parenting maybe activated this notion of self-reliance, which then translates mostly into persistence and hard work. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like no one's going to help you figure it out, but I'll give you the tools. I'll give you the raw materials to do it. And you're smart enough to figure out how to connect all of the pieces to, to do the rest. Yeah, I think that's a pretty powerful thing. And I think that... Um... I think sometimes people think they're doing people a favor by sparing them from that, but we all have to get there eventually, and it's better to get there. So the sooner you get there, I feel like the more equipped one is. And I was speaking to someone who I think who's maybe still trying to figure it out, but certainly didn't learn it at a super young age, you know, that, but I think it's advantageous because then you have, then you're equipped with, the behavior and the, the sort of, I don't know, confidence might be the wrong word, but the awareness that you can solve situations and that reduces anxiety and all kinds of things. So that was, I think the thing that I always thought was funny is, is that, you know, when you and I were growing up, I think you're the early element of Generation X and I'm in the middle of it, is, is that the commentary, just like there's millennial commentary now, but the commentary for us in the 90s were that we were a very dissatisfied generation and that we weren't motivated and that we weren't going to get anything done. Right. Everybody says that about everybody. Yeah, and yeah. that, you know, we were generally apathetic. But you know what? Like, I don't, you, you didn't hear uh, apathetic, not motivated. Like, you don't categorize millennials as that, right? Like, millennials get categorized as, I think, more like everyone gets a trophy and right. We're a bunch of go-getters and we believe in community and like you, you know, sharing an economy and shit like that. Like mm-hmm. they weren't saying that about us in the mid nineties. They were saying, uh, disaffected, not motivated, blah, blah, blah. But I think what's incredibly interesting is, is that for the most part, and I don't remember a lot of overbearing parenting going on in the 70s and 80s. I, I don't think our, I think our generation, a lot of the people that I've worked with for the last 20 years, they all demonstrate very similar characteristics of persistence and hard work and, 
hey, I taught myself how to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's possible that there's like some community bias, right? Like I've just gravitated toward those individuals. Sure. But now in retrospect, right, Generation X is actually pretty engaged and knows what they're doing and is persistent and is hardworking and, um, and is very different than obviously what we were cast as at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But I agree that learning that stuff is important, but here's the irony of generational parenting. I shield my sons from that kind of stuff like you would not believe, and I can't pinpoint why or how to undo it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think that's common too, right, is you – when it's your kid, <laughs> literally yours, right? It starts to look different. It starts to feel different. And you might even look at the people next door and beg, well, they should do this with their kid. That kid should toughen up or whatever. But you don't really <laughs> want to necessarily do that to your <laughs> right. child. Right. Although I do different things that I have been categorized by other parents uh, uh, as bad. Of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course. That, <laughs> that part makes perfect sense. Um, you, I think, seem like a person who's, uh, with, along with the persistence, um, being sort of organized and motivated to, to do things and to check things off your list. Sure. Yeah? Yeah. What's your approach to that stuff? Like, how do you... Because everybody, I think it's a common thing to hear people, I have too much to do, or I blah, 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 or I'm not getting enough things done, whether it's work or life or whatever. Like, how do you, do you get anxious about that stuff? Do you just knock it out? Like, how do you approach that? Uh, A really good, Laura will laugh at this, because I think I have a, anyone that has worked with me for a long period of time, or has known me for a long period of time, um, will realize that there is a general pattern toward the way I do almost everything. Whether that's as simple as making someone's lunch or as complicated as putting together a budget Mm -hmm. of my company for work. Um, And it all starts with me with a total fucking freak out. Like it, it starts, it's so silly, right? Like, but it starts with me being angry, or upset, or highly anxious about having to do a thing. Um, it's so. An example: every morning, I have to. I, I wake up, I take a shower, and I have to accomplish the following things: I have to empty a dishwasher, make one lunch, feed myself, and get two children dressed. That's basically the extent of every single morning. Mm -hmm. And every single morning, I am angry about having to do all of those things. (laughs) But I accomplish them. Mm -hmm. So I think the general pattern that I I find myself in is, is that I have to some subconscious motivator is to increase the tension, drama, or anxiety of a task to kind of like motivate 
my ego to do it. Um, and then at that point, once I kind of get over, it's like Kubler-Ross, right? This first stage of death and dying mm. is anger, right? Right, And then resentment. And it isn't un- until you get past anger and resentment that you get to like coping and acceptance. Um, once I get over the anger and resentment of having to do a thing and someone who's listened to me either complain about it or yell about it, um, then the more logical side of my brain kicks in and I basically do the same thing over and over again. I just decompose everything into a series of steps and linearly mm-hmm. execute those steps. Do you feel less stress at that point? Is, that, is yes, there a relief? That, once that you, is, where's the point where it yeah, starts that to become is a relief? The, the catharsis is writing the list. Okay. Is writing the list. And then you don't get anxious when you look at the list or work the list. You just go through it and you're you good. Just do it. At that point. Right. It's kind of like saying the rosary. <laughs> There's a... I think the the the, the one uh, where I became most self aware of this was maybe what year would it have been? It had to have been either nineteen ninety eight or nineteen ninety nine. Mm-hmm. And oh no, it was the year. It was December twenty seventh. 1998 going into 1999. Okay. I was in Los Angeles, California with my two good friends, Joel Grossman and Mike Meharis. And uh, in 1998, I would have been 24. I was working for uh, Playboy Enterprises and I was in Los Angeles to to a live webcast of the New Year's Eve party at the Playboy Mansion. And the number of people that were doing this were basically three, me, Joel, and Mike. And when we got there, we realized that None. We didn't have any of the equipment. We didn't have any of the bandwidth. We really didn't have a clue as to how the hell we were going to do this. And immediately, I totally freaked out. Like, I'll never forget. It was probably one of the most surreal experiences of my entire life. You're on the back lawn of the Playboy Mansion surrounded by, like, flamingos. Uh, kind of blue is playing right over like the pool speakers <laughs> and I find myself yelling at Joel and Mike that there's no way that we're going to be able to pull this off in like four days we have no plan <laughs> and I think after that they both kind of said okay right like we're going to have to figure this out and I went to uh like a table by the the very iconic like grotto pool over there with a notebook and I just started writing out everything that needed to get done in the next four days and once I did that it was kind of like I showed them the list I said okay here are the here here's everything that we need to do who's going to do what 
and then at that point everything was fine mm-hmm. um but it was surreal and stressful and anxious and there was like I, you, you know i don't you create those it, i don't think you when you experience that professionally like wait a minute like i'm this is someone's paying me to do this like i kind of can't do it half assed i actually have to i have to deliver <laughs> i think that was the time where it was like i began to then refine my formula of freak out scream and yell about it decompose it into its parts and then right just knock out the parts as best you can and for the most part that is how i execute almost everything everything that i need to do in my personal and professional life is is that they become lists or a series of steps how do you prioritize stuff i, I like, think it it's always uh i joke about this there's actually um we were debating we were debating priority how you prioritize stuff at work and i started uh thinking about how i do stuff and there's actually uh there's actually an an acro- an acronym or like there's actually an algorithm that like mapped to how i informally judge stuff it's called weighted shortest job first so i do the easiest things that have the most impact mm-hmm. <laughs> before I do the hard things right. that no one's really going to give a crap about. Mm-hmm. So it's this constant reevaluation of, hey, is that real easy to do? And hey, is that going to improve someone's life? Right. So like as a manager, it's you, you're you're always constantly going. How do I make sure that I'm taking care of my team and uh, incentivizing them to, you know, work hard, be connected, be good teammates? And so the things that you do are, hey, is this going to be good for someone else? Or do I need to take care of this person? Or how can I help? And, And how can I do it quickly, too, so I can move on to the next thing? Yeah. So I start days with, like, just do all the easy things do you apply the same thing in your personal life yeah yeah same principle i think that drives laura a little crazy sometimes (laughs) because like i refuse to do the things like she'll ask me like she she said something to me the other day like uh your headlights out in your car she had to drive my car because her car was broken she's like the headlights out in your car you you need to get some new headlights and of course, I'm like, oh God, well, like, I'm gonna have to get the special headlights. And then, have you ever tried to put those headlights in? Right? They're they're impossible to put in. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna wait for someone to do this. Right? Um, but then, right after that's done, like, you get the headlights. <laughs> you watch the YouTube video. You're like, okay, I think I can do this. Right? That's stepped out, and then you just kind of do it all and. Mm-hmm. Um, but conversely, so that's like a real easy job, but conversely, I'm not going to do like really hard things. Like, will you investigate these five landscape contractors and call them 
so we can get ideas about how to improve the curb appeal of our Evanston house. <sighs> no way. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> not going to do that. So is that one where you actually are just like, I, I'm absolutely, it's not going to happen? Yeah. Really? I, I say, I'm like, that sounds like a thing that you might be good at, Laura. How does Pepper's Laura think Pepper's that? Laura, she, I think she smiles at it. But we've come to this uh, detente where uh, she'll ask me to do something, and I can always kind of like invert it by the amount of questions or feedback or input I'm going to have to answer. Mm-hmm. So Pepper's Laura is what I like to call a medical professional. Mm-hmm. Um she knows a lot about science and medicine, but her schedule doesn't necessarily align with the ability to take children to dentists, for right. example. So when I take a child to the dentist, I'm pretty laid back about the whole ordeal. Mm-hmm. I, I want to make sure that the kids open their mouths and that they don't have right. cavities and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really occur to me to ask a lot of questions about dental progression or health or whatever, right? Like, I guess I'm old school like that. If, if something's wrong, the dentist is going to go, oh, cavity, something wrong. Right. Uh, Pepper's Laura likes to take a slightly more uh, integrated approach, which is she likes to ask a lot of questions. Well, should he... Should they maybe not be eating fruit snacks and so that they could prevent cav- cavities? Um, so whenever I, I, ta- I take the kids to the dentist, for example, I'll, I'll pack them in the car. We'll go to the dentist. And then on the way back, I'll call Pepper's Laura and be like, hey, took them to the dentist. Everything's great. No cavities. And then it will be, did you ask about this or this or this or that or this? Did you ask about that? Why didn't you ask about that? I can't believe you didn't ask about that. And then I'll be like, oh, shit. And so what we've been able to do is categorize those situations. Right, know which ones are good for you to field and which ones are good for her to. Yeah. So the landscaper one would be a good one for her. So, <laughs> all right, Pepper's Laura, if you're listening. <laughs> Um, the, so that's interesting because I think that, um, there's that scene from the West Wing where maybe it's even the first episode or something. I can't remember, but where, uh, Josh Lyman goes to a meeting with some people. Yeah. Right. And then he, they're, they think they're going to like sort of like bamboozle him, I think. And then he has a bunch of questions and he's able to really kind of like parry with them, right? right. And so, and he says to either them or somebody else, like the, the gist of it is you never go into a, a meeting not knowing who the other people are in the meeting and what's what's going to happen. Absolutely. Right? And so that seems, I think he, that applies, to, that's your kind of approach generally to things but it sounds like it's interesting to me that you're not necessarily diving super deep in every single area or every activity that you're involved in it's selective yeah it's very selective it's not like you're compulsively like diving into 
I think when I was you young, I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten a lot more selective in the things mm-hmm. that I really am interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's kind of, I feel like maybe some of that is like laziness. Mm-hmm. I like to think of it as uh, wisdom. I think of it as in myself as I'm like, yeah, I'm super, I'm super lazy. I'm disinterested. No, but like, but I, I think you'd like to come off like that, but I think you, I think, I think you know that, yeah, that's just not my thing. That's just not my thing. You know, you're not trying to be aloof or anything and you're not trying to be a jerk and you're not trying to be like a cranky old guy. You're just like, dad, you know what? I know myself pretty good. That's just not my thing. And I think you realize that you can't, you have limited time and energy, and yeah. you can't apply yourself to the same depth to everything. It's just not a good use of your yeah. time and it's energy. It's just not smart. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so one of the areas that I know in the past you've talked about um, where you have applied your system yes. and your analysis is like travel things. Like I remember you talking about it, oh, briefing somebody else on the Disney plan, right? Your spreadsheet and yeah, there's spreadsheets. There were spreadsheets, which I'm going to need a copy of, I think. <laughs> but, um, yeah, with travel, we sure with travel. Yeah. So is that your, I'm interested in travel. Like, um, I think this, do you like to have it planned out? Are you? Yeah. L- Laura and I, um, I think this kind of started uh, probably about 13 years ago when we – so when we got married, we didn't go on our honeymoon right, right away. Uh, she had just gotten a job offer, and ironically, I had just gotten a job offer mm-hmm. too. And so we got married, and literally a week later, we were driving a trailer back from St. Louis. She was, had just finished her residency, and we were driving it back to Chicago so we could both start our new jobs. So we kind of deferred mm-hmm. uh, our honeymoon. A year later, we decided that we were going to go to Europe. Right. And we were going to go to multiple places in Europe, and we were going to go for like three weeks. And it was at that point when, she, you know, that's one of those things that like is it's romanticized a lot. It's like, well, we're going to go, and it'll be fun, and we'll take the train, and um well, that's like terrifying to me, right? <laughs> like it's incredibly terrifying. It's like, well, wait a minute, where are we going to stay? And these people don't speak English. And how? What are we going to do? How are we going to do this? This is impossible to do. This isn't like Rick Steves on TV. Like, how are we going to do this? Well, you can like see, right? So here's the system in play, right? Um, so then once Laura kind of holds my hand and says, "No, it's going to be okay. You're going to be able to figure this out." Um, you kind of like, okay, well, what's the first step? Well, the first step is we have to get to Europe. <laughs> okay, what's the next step? We have to get from the airport to wherever it is we're staying. Okay, what's the step after that? We have to have a place to stay. So then you just start putting it all together. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, well, where do you want to fly into? Well, let's fly into Paris. Okay, where are we going to stay in Paris? Where should we stay in Paris? And then it all kind of organically falls into mm-hmm. place. Where do we want to go next? We want to go to Munich. Well, how the hell are we going to get from Paris to Munich? We're going to have to take a train. How are we going to buy the ticket? When are we going to go? How long is the train ride? And so the Europe trip, which was awesome, 
turned into the general way Laura and I plan vacations, mm-hmm. which is it, it's incredibly methodical. Um, and it's not necessarily planned, but it's very methodical in its, in its approach mm-hmm. so that we just kind of know what's going on. And I don't know if she was like that or if, like, she's just kind of, like, kowtowed to me or if she's picked up on this. So the Europe trip was, here's where we're going to be. And and I think you and I have talked about this because you take a very different approach to travel than I do. Whenever we got to a city, the agenda was pretty open-ended. But it was very regimented in terms of, okay, we got to get out of here. And we got to get to the next city. Mm-hmm. So we always had lodging lined up. Right. And that then governed when we would need to buy tickets. Right. But when we got to a city, whether we were there for three or four days, we would just do whatever. Right. You didn't have the daily activities mapped out. Yeah, no. We would just do whatever. And so that's that's generally the approach. We just got back from vacation in Florida. Um last week or two two weeks ago and we drove with a nine-year-old and a four-year-old uh to florida <laughs> wally world might as well be wally world <laughs> and it was very regimented how many miles we needed to drive mm-hmm. each day so we stopped in nashville because mm-hmm. it's kind of like a halfway point and but we did again whatever during the day if kid, the kids wanted to stop right like we looked at these rockets in Huntsville right. that were really cool um but so there there's a very regimented approach to to that stuff are there places you'd like to go that you think about going that you haven't gone i think the where i mean i've been to europe a bunch of different times all over europe I really like amsterdam and i i really like europe in general um, I've been all over, obviously, the United States. The places that I, th- I think that you know, the undiscovered countries, mm-hmm. right, um, would be Africa, South America, and most of Asia. Mm-hmm. Now, am I interested in going to any of those places? That's really the question. Am I interested in going to? <coughs> yep. <coughs> Excuse me. I think I would be interested in going into South America. <coughs> I think Brazil seems. I, I think Argentina and Brazil very interesting. Um, I don't know if I'd be interested in go. I, I I would be interested in going to Africa, but probably North Africa, the more metropolitan, mm-hmm. cosmopolitan regions <coughs> of it. Um, in Asia, I mean, the last time I was in Asia, the last time I was in the Philippines, I was three. That would have mm-hmm. been 1977. Wow. I, the only thing I, I remember, bits and pieces of it, I remember Mike Peppers stealing a Defenders comic in the Tokyo airport. I remember my Uncle Edgar climbing a coconut tree to get me a coconut. And I remember sleeping in mosquito nets. Oh, and I remember going to the bathroom uh, on an airplane. I remember. I remember not wearing diapers anymore. Interesting, because I was a lot of memories. I was seated. I was seated right by the bathroom, and I was fascinated by these people going into this room. (laughs) And I asked my mom, 
what are they doing? And she's like, well, they go in there and go to the bathroom. And I'm like, what do you mean? They don't wear these, right? And like the famous story is, is that I left not potty trained and basically after a 10-hour plane ride, I was potty trained. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so there, there's probably parts of Asia that I would like to see. I'd like to see Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to go back to the Philippines eventually. Um, I don't know about China, right? Like I hear a lot of mixed reviews on China, a lot of pollution. Uh, Hong Kong I think would be cool. I don't know. I'm kind of more into urban. It sounds like it, yeah. I'm kind of more into like urban things, Yeah, urban cities. I'm not kind of like a – I'm not a sit-around kind of dude on vacation. You know, like I'm not, I'm not really into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can be, but it's not. It's kind of not my thing. But it seems like everybody has their affinities and there's tastes that are you know that don't really have to have an explanation. It's just what you gravitate toward. My youngest son uh, said something to <laughs> said something to me, and I could I heard I overheard the conversation. Uh, and I can only imagine the response or the look on Laura's face. My youngest son, Owen, said they were I, – I overheard this conversation. It was something like, I want to go camping. And uh, I don't think – Laura's not really a camp, camper kind of kind of gal, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? As a guy, I know you, you camp, right? Like she's not – I don't think she's a camper kind of gal. Uh, <laughs> So I think that that maybe has led to right our slightly more uh, appreciation of urban mm-hmm. vacations than not. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, I think that it's interesting when yeah, even based on no like firsthand experience, people, myself included, have you can have fairly strong attractions or affinities for a place, or at least in. in theory right yeah that, that you're interested there's places i'm definitely that i have not been at all and don't really know anything about and some of the things in that category i'm very interested to see and some i'm not at all interested right. to see, and it's hard to explain why that is i feel like it's just a sort of an innate thing a little bit but also it, i think it ties to what kinds of activities you know you like or what kinds of things you like to mm-hmm. see yeah, what are the things that you like to do? I think, you know, we were talking about, like, being by myself. I I don't – it's kind of weird. Like, I don't know if I – I think why I like cities is, is that it gives you the guise of anonymity mm-hmm. in uh, a highly concentrated place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, I like that. When I went to college in Bloomington, Indiana, for a couple of years, I didn't really like it, and I didn't. And it, it took me a long time to figure out why I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it because it didn't feel um, it didn't feel real to me. Number one, it felt incredibly surreal, and number two, it just th- there was something about the space which was beautiful. Like Bloomington, Indiana, is beautiful. Mm-hmm. But it, I didn't really get a lot of energy from it. And when I came back to the city uh, and I transferred to Loyola, I, it was very comforting like a, like a teddy bear. It was, like, it was like, oh, well, like, 
I'm in this urban environment and it, it, it was really great. And so I think like that is, it's not that I don't like nature or I don't like camping or anything. Right. But it's kind of like there is something kind of cool about going to a city and exploring it by yourself or with somebody else. Right. And finding all the nooks and crannies associated with it. And also knowing that like it can be scary, but like it's also kind of cool that like nobody knows who you are. Right. It's also, yeah, that's any really, those are really interesting ideas because I also disliked my place where I went to college. And I think that it was the wrong combination of those things. Like maybe if it had been a smaller institution in a small town, it's not that it, I minded not being a city or if I'd been in a, maybe been in a city yeah. that was a different city. Cause there's also that thing. Like you can walk around your home city and you have a certain, I think, uh, sort of imperceptible, but baseline self-consciousness. Whereas if you go on vacation, you're walking around in other city, you yeah. will approach it differently, differently, even though you're, you're effectively anonymous in your own city uh-huh. too, uh-huh. but there's just something about that. Yeah. And that can be kind of energizing, right? Because yeah. you'll do the kinds of things that you wouldn't do at home, even though they're right there at home, too. They're equally accessible. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Isn't this mi- <laughs> That explains the phenomenon of miniature golf. Right? Go on. <laughs> miniature golf <Yeah. laughs> is probably one of the silliest things one can do. Right. It isn't like I'm calling you up to go play miniature golf. Right. At the bunny hutch. Right. Now, I could. We we will. We should. We will. We will. But we'll be doing that with our families. Right. We'll not be doing that because we're we're out. Right. But if we're in a different city. And we're looking to explore or do something. Hey, let's play some miniature golf. It, it becomes totally reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes totally reasonable, right? It explains why miniature golf in the Dells, yeah, is bananas, but miniature golf at the Bunny Hutch, not so much. It's an interesting point, right? You need sometimes there's those activities where you just need something to do to get out. Yeah. Which I would apply to golf. Golf. <laughs> right? That's the point of golf. <laughs> Get to be out of the house for five hours in the weekend away from everybody. That's, sure. That's the, that was my dad's thing. I'm not. Golf isn't my thing. I mean, I, yeah, I just, I can't. Yeah. I have some guys that are becoming like my dad, right, where they have like tea times and like, let's do this. Let's do this. And I'm kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which kind of goes against the liking to do things by oneself. Sure. So you can golf by yourself. But. Right. There's certain things like that, right, that you could do by yourself, but it's does not as. Yeah. Not for me. Right. Not as satisfying. Mm-hmm. We do need to go to the bunny hutch, though. Yeah. Banning cages, for sure. That's a must. Although I'm only good for like, it's interesting. I was thinking about this recently. You know, did you play baseball? I did. Growing up, right? So I did. The number of times that I threw a baseball in the summers of 1977, 78. Sure. Like, I, 
I don't know how many it was, but I threw a baseball a bunch of times. Yeah. And it's funny how, you know, then you obviously, it's sort of obvious, but you don't do it for a while. And what a weird, unnatural thing it is. And just think back, there was a time when, I guess it's true, it could be true of many things, but right, there was a time when I was so, I was competent at this, and yeah. now I'm less competent, and less competent than I was a, as a nine-year-old at this same activity. But the muscle memory is all there still. You still know how to throw a baseball. Mm-hmm. You still yeah, know how to swing a bat. You still know how to swing way. a bat, right? You still know how to swing a bat. But yeah, mechanically, I I have a better appreciation. My so my son plays baseball. Yeah, and he just finished his first like travel baseball season, so he's good enough to play on a travel team. But he really struggled hitting a baseball, and it wasn't until. I started trying to show him how to hit a baseball that I began to realize how fucking hard it is to hit a baseball. It is really, really hard. It's really hard. And so we're in the midst of a wonderful Cubs season. And I'm not a Cubs fan, but I really like this team. And so when you get to see an MVP candidate like Chris Bryant just crush the crap out of the ball. You fall, it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. You fall into this like weird, almost delusional state, like, yeah, it's real easy. I could do it. But it isn't until you get in there and you realize, oh my God, this is like impossible. This is impossible to do with the bunny hutch. Right. How am I doing this against guys that are being paid millions of dollars to do it? Um, but what I think is interesting is that the muscle memory is there. Like you still remember, mm-hmm. you still remember how it is to to hit a baseball. Mm-hmm. I still remember the summer that my brother tried. To, my older brother Mike, who was great at baseball, tried to make me good at baseball. Right, and yeah, that was a failure. But <laughs> <laughs> that was a failure. But thanks for the try. But I remember all of those things. I remember, I remember very clearly how he showed me how to hold the bat. And I still hold the bat the same way, and I still position my feet exactly the same way. Um, and what's funny is is that uh, Ian Peppers, my son, my oldest son, has very similar a very similar stance to what I had. Mm-hmm. My my both both of my brothers hate it. They, did you teach it to him, or no. did he just develop it? I think he just he just has it. Interesting. He just has it. It could explain why he's a shitty hitter. <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully not. It's funny that... Yeah, I feel like if you go into like a batting cage or whatever, right, there's a certain... Like a nostalgia flashback that you have just from the physical activity, yeah. right? Not necessarily thinking about it consciously or, you know, it's just... You're you're doing that thing, and then you're back in that time and space. Yeah, it's. I think it's somebody said. Uh, I, I I read somewhere that, um, in humans, uh, smell is actually one of the strongest memory triggers. Sure. So when you I, smell I something, seems... when you smell something, um, it can elicit really deep memories that you had not thought about for long periods of time 
that kind of like come flowing back in really fast recall. Um, but I think hitting a baseball or doing something really physical, um, like popping an ollie on a skateboard, um, those things too, mm-hmm. like it's almost like a little mini time machine. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. Like I'm like 13 again. Right. Just for an instant. Sure. Just for an instant. Um, and I think music does that too. Um, I was listening to on the way in, uh, one of my favorite Billy Idol songs came on favorite. You'll never get it. It's a deep cut. Okay. Then that probably won't get deep it. cut. You'll know it when I say it, but okay. it's a deep cut. It's not a mainliner. Blue Highway. Oh, that's a deep cut. Blue Highway came on. Okay. I believe I had the picture disc single. Sweet. Um, and I think that was the B side of it, yeah. actually. And Steve Stevens' guitar playing in that is, like most of his guitar playing in, with Billy Idol, is incredibly frenetic. Like, it's like this like very staccato and like nervous energy mm-hmm. right but it's then intermixed with all of this like pretty classic right. rock chords right and i that came out probably when i was like 10 or 11 yep and while i was driving down western I, like it was like i could like envision myself sitting in my kitchen listening to a very terrible radio on the wall that was wood paneled, um, listening to like MET, right? Love it. Listening to MET with Blue Highway on, and so it was that like like weird little moment where I was just like, oh wow, I hadn't, I I don't think about WMET at all. <laughs> right, but all of a sudden it's. But all of a sudden I'm back there. in my kitchen and I can see the table and like the radio and like what the tile looked like. Yeah. Right. The red fence out the back door. Right. Like all from. Right. That song. That's great. That's a very interesting point too, that the idea that the, then that's the gateway to other memories that you, that for me, like sometimes I will think to myself, I can barely remember anything about anything ever. But then someone says something very specific and you talk about that. And I'm like, Oh, I remember having a radio that was like in the wall, and now I can picture the knobs, and now I can picture it. So, it sort of like did it have an intercom it, system like yes. mine? Yeah, and it it's unlocks and retrieves that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Now, would I ever have thought about that if no. you had not mentioned that? You know, over the next ten to whatever years, like probably not. No, but yet it's in there. So it's like the memories are some of them anyway are. are more than I think are still there. It's just they're not they're not obvious, right? They're not on the surface. It's pretty interesting. I wonder I I wonder if as you get older So, you know, my dad would always listen to uh one oh five point nine WCKG, mm-hmm. right? Classic rock. Or he would listen to Dick Biondi and the Oldies. Okay. Right. And I find myself now, right, I'm at an age where I'm not really hip to what's going on in the current music world, right? Like, apparently the VMAs were just on, uh, the Video Music Awards Mm -hmm. were just on MTV. I'll take your word for it. I I don't know any of the people that are on there, 
right? Like, be, I'm familiar with who they are in terms of celebrity. Right. Beyonce, Britney Spears, sure. yada, yada, yada. But I don't really know. I couldn't, I couldn't hum a Beyonce song. And so I wonder, I'm at the age now where I, I find myself listening to stuff, right, from the 70s and the 80s, stuff from the 90s, um, some contemporary stuff as well. But I wonder if that's a natural thing that people do as they get older so that they can not necessarily relive what it was like to live in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, but to reactivate those moments, which, I don't know, it's, it's, just, it's, yeah. it's just interesting. It's, right. It's, I don't reactivate them to be like, oh, that was awesome. I reactivate them because it's like, oh, yeah. That tile was that weird pale yellow color with, like, blue in it. <laughs> or, like, when I see, like, a, 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 an example, like, when I see uh, kids' back-to-school Facebook photos. God damn it. The Catholic Church is still making girls wear those plaid red jumpers. <laughs> still. <laughs> still, right? And it's like... I think about those jumpers and it's like, oh my God, right? Like it has not changed at all. Um, but it then activates all of like these weird, like, oh my God, going to church two times a week and what it was like riding the bus. And it's these like little strange, like fleeting moments of memory. Yeah. You get the, it ties to other sensations. Yeah. So there's songs that I hear and I can, I can picture the, the windows on the screen school bus and the warm air coming at the end of the school year. Oh, yeah. Just for specific certain songs will, like, remind me of, will bring me right back to that. They'll bring me back to other sensory experiences. Moments. Um, that are very kind of specific. Moments. And, yeah, it's very interesting. So, like, sure, smell is a thing, but, like, it's interesting for someone that loves music like I do. Like, there are just things where you you don't think about it and you're like it, it actually it's it transports you back into a, totally a thing right yeah so thanks steve stevens billy idol blue highway way to go face melting solo in that one too. i'm gonna have to go back and listen to that one face man. melting solo All right, i'll check it out i like me some steve stevens playing fantastic guitar player awesome um I don't want to keep you all day. I have to go make the donuts a little bit here in a few minutes. We'll see what's going on. I thank you, Terrence Allen Peppers, for being the guest on What Else. Thanks. All right. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of What Else. More to come. Goodbye.